Let us turn this evening to John's Gospel, chapter 20, reading the first 18 verses. And as you're turning to um, that portion of God's Word, just to follow up on uh, Pastor Bob's uh, note earlier about uh, From His Fullness Ministries and this forthcoming trip to Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, uh, this is uh, not a closure of the ministry, it's an extension of the ministry, just a longer-term um, assignment. You have been so good to us as a congregation, so generous, so kind, and not a little patient with us during this COVID uh, season as we've been home uh, more than we would have been otherwise. But uh, this is an opportunity to help uh, St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in the city of Kuala Lumpur. It's the International Church of Kuala Lumpur. And um, they have been asking that uh, I would come and help them as they position themselves as a Presbyterian church there in what is a great city, a strategic city in uh, Southeast Asia. And so we look forward to meeting, finally, the brothers and sisters that we've met over Zoom a number of times now and uh, making some contribution as God leads us into the work of that uh, significant congregation in, in Southeast Asia. So we do value your prayers for that and do praise God as uh, Pastor Bob has mentioned this evening, for the receipt of, of the visa. So more of that to come. Well, let us hear God's word tonight from John 20, verses 1 to 18. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The Lord bless this reading of his holy word. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you. We thank you for the written word. We thank you for the freedom here to hear it uh, preach to us so we may enjoy it. We feel a, a freshness of knowing you and knowing what you did. We thank you for these many blessings. Ask us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. 
Well, the title of our message this evening is, Whom Are You Seeking? And you will notice that uh, the title of the sermon comes from verse 15, the words of the Lord to uh, Mary Magdalene in this uh, unique passage, at least from verse 11 onwards, in all the gospel accounts of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I'm very well aware that um, as Christians, balance is one of the key things that we aim at as brothers and sisters in Christ. Theological balance, practical balance, devotional balance. And perhaps in the pews of the church, one of the more familiar balances that we talk about and for which we strive is the balance between head and heart. And that is the balance that's in the passage tonight as we reflect upon the great love of Mary and the realization that accompanying that love needed to be a greater understanding of what was going on in the history of redemption on this marvelous resurrection day, the first day of the week. And as I look back, if I may say for a moment, to 2017 when God led us to uh, found From His Fullness Ministries, it was this balance which was partially uh, at the core of what we were seeking to do after a number of occasions of traveling abroad and seeing the context into which the Lord's people are worshiping and serving and understanding that in my own personal library, and I know my library is not unique, Pastor Bob could say the same, that we probably have more books in our libraries than whole seminaries have in their institutional libraries in different parts of the world. And understanding that we have an opportunity as the church in the Western world to go and to minister to others so that they may be able to share more in the theological and historical and practical riches that we have in the church in the West. But our ministry is a two-way street, and the other way in which the street goes or the traffic goes is that when we go to these far-flung places, we don't simply go with some imperialistic spirit as if we are the ones with the knowledge, we are the ones with the experience, we are the ones who are the givers and they are the receivers. What we find so often, and those of you who've been on mission trips can well understand this, is that we are inspired, we are challenged to the core of our beings, and we then return and tell of the great love that God's people have in different parts of the world, even though they can't rub two halfpennies together. And so it is that balance between the head and the heart which comes to the fore in this passage tonight, specifically in the life, the ministry, the discipleship of Mary Magdalene. But who was Mary Magdalene? She's talked about a lot these days and has been throughout history. I put it to you, first of all, that there is what we might call the egalitarian proposal, the idea not simply that we are created equal in the eyes of God, but that uh, what a man can do, a woman can do. And so there is the egalitarian idea that what we are dealing with here is an early apostle, Mary Magdalene. Well, I want to say that the word apostle, as those of you who have been in our uh, Sunday school class through Acts, we'll know, is used in two different senses within the New Testament. It's used in a general sense of anyone who is sent out by Christ or by the church. And so the argument that Mary Magdalene is an apostle comes from verse 17, where Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And so the egalitarian comes along and says, see, there you have women's ministry. Jesus sends her, and the church has covered this up, that Mary was actually belonging to the office of the apostle. But that's not the case. As we know from Luke 6, where we have a list of the apostles, they are all brothers because although men and women are created equal in the sight of God, we have complementary roles and not egalitarian roles. 
And so Mary Magdalene is an apostle in a general sense, but she does not hold the office of an apostle. And then there is what we might call uh, counteracting that, supposedly a harsh complementarian idea. And this idea is somewhat in reaction to the egalitarian proposal, and it says, well, actually, we've made too much of Mary Magdalene. She was actually a prostitute. But there are those who say that this theory arose out of the fact that there were those who did not like the fact that Mary Magdalene was so prominent in the Gospels. And so what has happened here, so the theory goes, is that she has been woven together with the sinful woman, the repentant prostitute in Luke 7, 37 to 38. And this idea was given some credence by Pope Gregory in 591. And in a sermon, he said this, she whom Luke calls the sinful woman, whom John calls Mary of Bethany, we believe to be the Mary from whom seven devils were ejected, according to Mark. And so this is the idea. She was a prostitute, and yet it seems that that idea was foisted on the church with a conflation of Mary Magdalene and the sinful woman in Luke 7 so that they could play down her significance. And then there's a third proposal, and the third proposal is what we might call the heretical proposal, that Mary Magdalene was the wife of Jesus. And this view dates back right to the second century and some of the spurious gospels that were written in those days. For instance, the second century gospel of Mary and other Gnostic gospels. And the whole emphasis upon Gnosticism coming from the Greek gnosis, meaning knowledge, was that Mary Magdalene must have been higher in profile than comes through the authentic Gospels as we would see them, because she had more knowledge and she had more influence than even the disciples, the apostles. And then we think of the Gospel of Philip, which goes further and claims that Jesus loved Mary Magdalene more than the other disciples. And then you come into our own day in Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, which goes even further and says, no, it wasn't simply that Mary Magdalene and Jesus were married, but they actually had children together, which is being covered up by the church. And then coming even closer, in 2012, a fragment was discovered called The Gospel of Jesus' Wife which claimed that Jesus referred to Mary Magdalene as my wife. And yet the Harvard professor, Karen King, who discovered this fragment, has since acknowledged that the fragment was a forgery. There is no evidence that Jesus Christ was married to Mary Magdalene or that they had children together. And so that brings us then to the biblical proposal that Mary Magdalene was a devoted disciple of the Lord Jesus. And this is the position which we're arguing for tonight, and I think comes through very clearly in this passage here in John 20. Note her name. There are seven Marys in the New Testament. Four of them are connected with men. You think of Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the mother of James, you think of Mary, the wife of Clopas. You think of Mary, the son of John. Remember the word of Jesus from the cross. Behold your son, behold your mother. And yet this Mary is called Mary of Magdala, the place in Galilee, probably from which she came, indicating then that she was not the wife of Jesus, Otherwise, it's quite likely that the New Testament would have told us that quite outrightly. What we do know is her salvation. Since Jesus only exorcised demons in the context of the preaching of the gospel, when we are told both in Mark 16 and in Luke 8 that from Mary of Magdala, these seven demons were cast, 
we are to believe that on the occasion of those demons being cast out of her, she was actually converted. Remember the principle of the unclean spirit found in Matthew 12, verses 43 to 45, where Jesus says, if an unclean spirit is swept out of the house, and the house is cleaned, and the house is put in order, then the unclean spirit comes back with seven spirits so that the situation is worse than it was before. So when Jesus, in his ministry of the kingdom, exercised demons from the lives of people, he did not leave them empty. He filled them with himself. And it is the gospel then which goes on to explain not only that Mary of Magdala was saved, but that she was a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. She wasn't simply a convert. She was somebody who demonstrated her love for the Lord Jesus. Let's just trace this out very quickly. If you go to Luke 8, 1 to 3, it's a marvelous passage speaking of the way in which women were involved in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So there we have the beginnings then of the discipleship of Mary of Magdala. And you can trace the commitment that she had as a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And so if you turn over to Matthew 27, she has come down from Galilee in the north of the country to Jerusalem. And when it comes to the crucifixion, verses 55 and 56, Matthew records, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And she is deeply troubled then by what she sees at the cross. So much so that when it comes to the burial of the body of Jesus later in the day, we read verses 59 to 61, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own tomb, new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So this is a woman then who is a stellar disciple. She has been saved in a dramatic way, and it is demonstrated by the way in which she follows on and she ministers to the Lord as he completes his earthly ministry. And so we notice then when we come into John 20, we notice her privilege. Far from playing down her role, John the son of Mary, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, honestly tells her of her privilege as the first to see the resurrected Jesus. So what is the point from this introduction? Well, the point is this. We are, as a congregation, holding to the complementarian position that men and women are created equal in the sight of God, but we have complementary roles in the leadership of families, and we have complementary roles in the leadership of the church. And we have witnessed of late in our circles here in America of people taking hold of this complementarian position and applying it in a hard and unloving way. And yet we need then to come back to the Scriptures, even as complementarians, and say that our complementarianism suffers when we demean faithful sisters in Christ and fail to extol their ministry within the biblical bounds. And I also want to add to that that even when we come across uh, women ministering 
pushing the bounds beyond what we believe to be biblical. We can disagree with that. We can counteract that. But what we cannot do is disparage them personally, even down to making rude comments about them. Because clearly, every resurrection account that we have makes much of Mary Magdalene, and this one in particular. So tonight, we want to notice two things. First of all, from the opening 15 verses, we want to notice her heart of love. She stands out at this point, not for her understanding, but for her love. And so let's notice together three characteristics of this love. First of all, her love for Christ is proactive, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. All four resurrection accounts agree that Mary Magdalene was in the first group to visit the tomb on that historic day. And she is mentioned first in each of them, which suggests that she was the leader of the women who were around her. So Matthew says that Mary Magdalene was with the other Mary. Mark says that Mary Magdalene was with Mary, the mother of James, and Salome. Luke says that Mary Magdalene was with Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and other women. And then Luke goes on to add, they told these things, the things that happened on that day to the apostles, which likely helps to explain why we have these different accounts of what was happening on that resurrection day. Because the different authors of the gospel heard different accounts from the similar women. They had been together and of course, they gave their accounts, and one of the evidences of the trustworthiness of Scripture is that things are not coerced. So they each gave their recollections of this resurrection day. And Mary Magdalene, leading these women, is seen as proactive in a number of ways. First of all, in preparing the spices. It seems that they didn't have time to do this with the Sabbath day coming up. And so they, uh, they uh, witnessed the uh, burial of Jesus in the tomb. And yet, once the Sabbath is over, they prepare the spices. We read of that in Luke 24, verse 1. Now, since they thought Jesus was dead, they were not thinking of loving upon him verbally, but unable to love upon him verbally as they perceived, they come with these spices to anoint him. Mark 16, verse 1. Now, I haven't gone into this much, but it seems nonsensical to me that they should do that, other than the fact that they loved the Lord. Why would you anoint a body that's already been buried, already been put in the tomb? You would anoint the body before it's gone in the tomb. But that's not what happened. And so, in all the pandemonium of that day, they prepare these spices, they take them to anoint the body. Love is proactive. And then love is proactive in the sense that they get up early, and that's described in different ways in the gospel. But this we know, they went at the crack of dawn to the tomb once the Sabbath was done. And love is also proactive in the fact that they didn't wait for a solution before deciding to go. Mary has seen Joseph of Arimathea and whoever helped him put the stone in front of the tomb. And as she goes to the tomb, this conversation breaks out amongst the women. But how are we going to get the stone away from the tomb? But it is because they love the Lord that they say, as we might say, we'll sort that out when we get there. The important thing is, we want to anoint the body, and it's as if, although they don't have the faith to believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, they do have a modicum of faith to believe that somehow they're going to empty the tomb or open the tomb. And I think the point that we're making here when we think of love being proactive is that our actions are indicators of our hearts. 
we are proactive concerning that for which our hearts yearn. Isn't that why we frown on apathy? What is apathy? I don't know and I don't care. Well, why does somebody come up with an answer about apathy? I don't mind and I don't care. Because there's no yearning of the heart to find out what apathy is because they're apathetic. But when it comes to Mary Magdalene, she doesn't have all the answers. She doesn't even have all the faith. But she has this yearning of the heart for the Lord. And that's what drives her to the tomb at the first of the morning. Well, the second thing about her heart of love is that it was passionate, verses 2 to 11. That's already coming across, but notice that her passion was earnest, the second half of verse 1 into verse 2. She came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Matthew tells us at some point between Mary Magdalene setting off for the tomb and arriving at the tomb, a latest earthquake had occurred. It was an earthquake when Jesus was crucified. But there's another one. And so when they arrive, they see the stone rolled away and the body gone. And so she runs to Peter and John. You remember the story. They have this race. And John wins the race. Peter comes running up behind, but Peter, being the temperament that he is, he might not have been able to run the race, but he was certainly going to be the first to go in the tomb. They see that the tomb is empty. The love for Christ is passionate, and it shows itself in an earnestness. But then, John and Peter go home, verses 9 and 10. They go home because they did not understand the scripture that he, Jesus, must rise from the dead. But not Mary Magdalene. She waits behind, verses 9 to 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She's the first to visit the tomb with the other women. She's now the first to weep at the tomb. Clearly, she is very attached to the bodily presence of Christ. And what's the lesson for us then? It is, of course, that when we realize what Christ has done for us, we too become agitated. When we don't sense that presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. As one writer has put it, God sometimes hides himself, but he never absents himself. And there are times in our lives, sometimes because of indwelling sin within us, when we grieve the Holy Spirit, where we don't sense the presence of Christ in our hearts. But there are other times when God in His sovereignty and in His wisdom hides some sense of the presence of Christ from us so that we yearn after Him all the more. If I may speak uh, of friends of mine, Brenda and I have about... Ten friends right now that we're praying for in the middle of life who are dying with cancer. And uh, I've heard from one of them of late. And uh, in quite some distress. And she writes and she says, I have this terminal diagnosis and I don't feel God. And she says, what's my cancer all about? What am I going to tell my children who think that life is meaningless? What am I going to tell the young lad that I've cared for and adopted? And how am I going to deal with my passing and his future? And I've yet got to reply to that message. And one of the reasons I've yet got to reply to the message because this dear lady has got cold feet about having shared her heart about what she really feels in the midst of dying with cancer. 
But one of the things that I'd like to say to her is this, that God sometimes hides himself, but he does not absent himself. That if she is genuinely belonging to the Lord, then he has promised that he will be with her through the valley of the shadow of death. And this is one of the things that we learn from Mary Magdalene. She has a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is precisely because she has a passion for him that she is troubled, that she does not sense his presence in her life. But what does she do with that sense? Well, the third thing, verses 12 to 15, love for Christ is pursuing. She's like a dog with a bone. For her relentless love, she goes on to receive several blessings from the Lord. First of all, verses 12 to 13, she is reassured. Looking into the tomb, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. This is the second time she said this. Now, if you go over to Matthew's account, you read that they also say, do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. But when God ministers to us to reassure us of who He is and that He is present in our lives, one of the things that He does is realign our feelings with the Word of God. And so we notice from Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, with regard to this conversation that's going on, that other words are recorded by Luke, which are not found here in John 20. He is not here. Luke 24, 6, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. Crucified and on the third day rise. In other words, these angels as messengers of the Lord, they understand and they accept her feelings at face value. But they do not leave her there. They then begin the work of realigning her feelings with what Christ had said. And then what do we notice? Well, Jesus himself comes forth. She doesn't recognize him. Verses 14 and 15. Having said this, back to John 20, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. The wonderful pastoral oversight of the Lord. We find it also in Luke 24 with the Cleopas. Jesus, knowing the situation, comes walking up to Cleopas, and he asks some questions. Why are you walking and looking so sad? And it gives Cleopas an opportunity to put out there why he's feeling so bad. And similarly here with Mary Magdalene. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? But the interesting thing is that Mary Magdalene doesn't actually answer the Lord. She's so taken up with her own weeping. And she says this ridiculous statement, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Imagine Mary Magdalene, if Jesus had died, of this woman taking hold of the body of a grown man, carrying him away from the garden. But such is the passion and the pursuit that she has of the presence of Christ, that she comes out with this claim. And what the author of the gospel is telling us is that sometimes it's not our heart that is the problem, but our understanding. And sometimes we have to hear ourselves in the midst of our own trials and troubles the things that come through our minds, the things that come through our words. And I'm sure that on the day of judgment, 
or when we look back upon the course of our lives and the afflictions that we've been through, the troubles that we've been through, and we see the compassion of the Lord Jesus, and we see the perfection of God's providence, and we look back upon our lives, I'm sure that from the vantage point of heaven, one of the things that by that time we'll be smiling about, <laughs> why did I react to that affliction in that way? If only I could have seen then what I see now. Oh, how chilled I would have been. But the wonderful thing about this is the way in which Mary Magdalene, she does not give up. She stays at the tomb. Yes, she's weeping. Yes, she doesn't believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. But she loves. And that brings us on then secondly to verses 16 to 18. Her object of love. To understand why Mary Magdalene loves so much, we must study the one whom she seeks. She's so fixated she doesn't answer the gardener. Yet from her concern we learn what compels our love today as well. And the first, of course, is that Jesus is our Savior. The first half of verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary or Miriam. How moved Jesus was to hear her heart. He doesn't judge her. He doesn't condemn her. He understands, as was also true with the sinful woman in Luke 7, that those who have been forgiven much love much. And so he sees on display her self-forgetting love for the Lord. And so he calls her by name, indicating the relationship that they have, a name that bespoke their closeness. And whereas he went on to give Cleopas and his fellow traveler a Bible study, how they should have understood the scriptures that Christ must suffer first and then be glorified, Jesus doesn't do that here. He meets Mary Magdalene where she is with her broken heart, and he just says, Mary, Mary. Jesus expects his disciples to be learners. But first of all, he craves our hearts. To understand what he has been through for us. And so, yes, and we'll come on to this, the importance of understanding a right. But we can understand a right. And yet, come across cold-hearted. So Jesus is our Savior, but the second half of verse 16, Jesus is our teaching. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now notice her confession here. She's really confessing her failure. She's calling him teacher when evidently she's not been learning or listening to all that she could have heard. And Jesus understands and is compassionate for the fact that her love has far outrun her understanding. Jesus could have said to her, don't call me teacher. Clearly, you've not been listening. Clearly, you've not been listening. I'm sure that Pastor Bob has had this experience of somebody coming up to him after the sermon saying, I know I've had this experience. Wonderful sermon, wonderful sermon. I love the point about such and such. And you're thinking, well, actually, that contradicts the very point I was making. And you, you graciously accept the comment, and you think, well, okay, note to self, I need to preach that message again in some other form, and maybe the right truth will come through. But there's not only a confession of her failure, it's a confession of Jesus' glory. Rabboni was very rare, reserved for eminent teachers like Gamaliel, the teacher of Paul, but was often used of God. It is equivalent to Thomas's explanation, my Lord and my God. So the audible learning's not gone so well, so now she comes on to the visible learning. And what is the message for us this evening? That love without a desire to learn is mere sentimentality, but understanding without adoration is merely academic. Jesus is our teacher. Thirdly, verse 17, Jesus is our Lord. Jesus said to her, 
Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Evidently, Jesus' resurrection body was tangible. It could be touched. Yet since Mary Magdalene is so fixated on Christ's bodily presence, that Jesus now seeks to wean her off that reliance so that she matures in her faith. And this is the same for us. Some of us may be wondering why things were so visible under the old covenant. The ceremonies, the cloud and the thunder and the lightning at Mount Sinai, why is everything so visible? Because it was the church under age. We're talking about babies coming into the congregation. And what's one of the things we do with babies? We teach them visibly. And Mary Magdalene has been an infant in her faith. And so she's fixated so much on the bodily presence of Jesus that Jesus now has to say to her, yes, I'm, I'm really raised. I'm bodily raised, but I need to wean you off the visible onto the spiritual. Isn't this what the Heidelberg Catechism teaches? Question and answer 47. Is not Christ with us unto the end of the world as he has promised us? And what's the answer? Christ is true man and true God. As a man, he is no longer on earth. But in his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. And the day is coming soon where Mary Magdalene will not be able to touch the body of Jesus. He will be ascended, and so she must learn, she must mature, so that she is relying upon the spiritual presence of Christ in her life and not the bodily presence. And isn't this one of the problems that's at heart with the historic debates over the Lord's Supper? Well, you see, um, we believe that uh, when the host is raised, uh, the wafer turns into the body of Christ and the, the wine turns into the blood of Christ and it's all very visible. And Martin Luther comes along and says, no, no, it's not transubstantiation. What we need to hold to is consubstantiation. So when we, uh, when we take the bread, we believe that Christ is present under the bread, with the bread, around the bread. And we in the Reformed tradition, it says, no, no, no. We are the church of the new covenant era that's come of age. Christ has bodily ascended, and therefore he's not going to be bodily present in the sacrament. He is really present by the Spirit, but not bodily present. We've been weaned off the visible, weaned off the bodily to come on to the spiritual. Jesus is high. He's our Lord. And then fourthly, Jesus is our brother, the second half of verse 17. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. We love Jesus. We learn not when we coerce him to meet our needs in the way in which we would like them met, but when we do what he says. And so... Mary Magdalene, on the day in which Jesus is raised from the dead, must now go to the disciples and announce the next redemptive event in the plan of God, the ascension. And what is Jesus talking about here? Well, he's talking about his glory. He's distinguishing as is true throughout the Johannine writings that there is a difference between his sonship by nature and ours by grace. My father, your father, my God, your God, throughout the Johannine writings, Jesus is called Son, Huios. We are only ever called Tecna, children, because John is trying to distinguish the way in which Jesus Christ is Son from the way in which we are children of God. He by nature, we by grace. And there's only one place in the Johannine writings where we are called sons of God, Revelation 21.7. Pertaining to the end of the age when we will morally, ethically, in terms of purity, be like the Lord Jesus. But the message also has to do with the grace of Christ. Although these disciples have fled, he has a future for them. They are to be his brothers, to reflect the family likeness, and to be his ambassadors after his ascension. Brother and sister, tonight, when we blow it as we do, this too is our hope.
writes J.C. Ryle, to trust deserters and to show confidence in backsliders was a compassion which man can hardly understand. I think this is one of the things that we have to emphasize in our day. We are pulling down statues left and right because people once deemed heroes were less than perfect. Some of them were pretty perfect according to the standards of their own day and the laws of their own day. But it doesn't matter. Let's pull down the statues. There's no gospel. There's no redemption. One of the challenges we have as brothers and sisters in Christ is to say sin is real. Sin is an offense to God. Yes, when we cover up sin, we diminish our view of the grace of God. But there is grace. And I need it. And we all need it. And Jesus, who could have blown off these deserters, these backsliders, he says, go and tell them. Basically, they're my brothers. And I've got great work to do through them. And so the fifth thing we learn then as we process Jesus as the object of our love is our reward, verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to his disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her, realizing that love must understand and obey and not simply feel. She goes and exclaims, I've seen the Lord. This has been her pursuit, her passion, her proactivity. Where's the body? And she says it several times. Where's the body? And she says to Jesus, thinking he's just a gardener, if you just tell me where the body is, I will pick up his body and I'll take him away because I'm going to fixate on the body of Jesus. But now she has a better understanding. I have seen not simply the bodily Jesus, but I have seen the Lord. I understand that there's a greater plan, that he is high and lifted up. And someday soon he's going to take our humanity through the skies to heaven, to the pinnacle of the universe. And so we ask ourselves tonight, what are we seeking? We can be critical of Mary Magdalene and say, ah, she made too much of the body. But what are we seeking? Recall the times when you've loved on the Lord and been rewarded by him. Conversely, when we have let our love for the Lord grow cold and we have missed the blessing. And so what's the takeaway tonight? Well, it is that we strike the balance between head and heart. Let me ask us tonight whether we love more than we understand. We opened with a call to worship tonight from Matthew 22, where Jesus gives the summary of the Lord taken from Deuteronomy. One of the things that we need to understand is that when Jesus says, love the Lord, he includes the mind. Love the Lord with all of your being, heart, soul, strength, mind. And so it is incumbent upon us if we say that we love the Lord to demonstrate that love by getting into the Word, by getting into the truths of the Christian faith. J.C. Ryle says, two-thirds of the things we fear in life never happen at all. And two-thirds two of the tears we shed are thrown away and shed in vain. If Mary had only had more understanding... She wouldn't have shed those tears. They would have been tears of joy. Ryle goes on, if Mary had found the seal of the tomb unbroken and her master's body lying cold within, she might well have wept. The only justification she had for weeping was tears of joy. But then, what if we understand more than we love? You see, coming back to my opening comments, there are people in the world tonight who can probably scratch together one or two books about the Christian faith. They can barely eke out a living. Sometimes they can't come to a conference that's put on because they need to go and find food and they can't afford to give up a day of work. But they love the Lord. And they're yearning out of that love 
to know more about the Lord, more about the Word, so that there's more meat on the bones of their love. Is it not possible for us that we have all the study Bibles, we have all the conferences, we have all the Bible studies, we are stuffed and saturated in the Western world with information. But as Pastor Bob said this morning, the world is watching and waiting to see. The church of Jesus Christ in this land, in the United Kingdom, in Europe, loving on the Lord, we claim to know so much about. Another of our friends who's dying wrote this the other day. He was in a class that I taught in Turkey. He was a missionary in Turkey. And then all of a sudden he got a sarcoma in his arm. Tumors flooding through his chest. He's about 35 years of age with five children, one of whom's just turned one years of age. And he wrote the other day a note that is probably the last note that I'll see him write. We will all see the king soon. For me, I suspect it will be very soon, starting hospice. You see, here's a guy who understands, very bright fellow, passionate about the Christian faith, who understands it's not, at the end of the day, about nailing down the providences of God and getting it all figured out, but I will soon see the king. That's true for us too. I'm reminded it's a century this year since the great Dutch Reformed theologian Herbert Bavink died. 1921, and this is what he's reported to have said on his deathbed, and he wrote volumes of what are called reformed dogmatics, but when he came to die, this is what he said, my dogmatics don't help me now, it's faith alone in Christ. He understood, understood very well that the very beginning of faith is knowledge given to us through the revelation of God's Word, applied to us by the Spirit. But those who are genuinely trusting in Christ go beyond a head knowledge to a conviction of the heart which is outworked in the will. May God help us to love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the way in which it encourages us in our love for you, but also the way in which it challenges us to be balanced. And we pray that by your grace, working in our lives, that we'd be able to strike that balance. And we'll give you the praise as having begun a good work in it, in us, you go on to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. For his glory, we pray these things. Amen. Well, let us sing to close 496, My Jesus.